welcome to How Do You Engineer, your educated podcast. I'm a host, Peter Martin. I'm a host, Abby Desjardins. I'm a host, Simon Whitmo. Um, so let's talk about some things. Hey, we're here. That was a rougher start than usual. Yeah. <laughs> now that we're back sitting across from each other, and yeah. it goes to... I don't know how to talk to you when you were in the same room. Oh, it's the worst. I'm used to staring at a blank Skype screen because we turn off the video. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we're back and we're going to talk about, uh, education, engineering education, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it is a topic which is near and dear to our hearts. So near and dear. Um, but before we get to that, we got to engineer something. Abby wanted to do what? I wanted to do a better alarm clock. Do you have a problem with your existing alarm clock? Do you have an alarm clock? Yeah, who owns our alarm clocks anymore? Well, like, not a clock clock, a, an alarm, something to wake me up. Better system for waking me up in the morning. Okay. What's the problem with your current system? Uh, my system's probably a little different than other people in that um, I like to wake up gradually, whereas, so I have no problem getting up, but most alarm clocks don't address that. But I know a lot of people have trouble actually getting up out of bed once the alarm clock goes off, and that really bothers them. Like, are you you're saying you wake up gradually? Like, you want one of those, like one of the systems that has that, like, really slowly turns the lights on. So it something gets a like brighter. that, and gets like the birds chirping, and then happiness. I hate birds and, chirping. Okay, well, I'm not. You guys want to hear terrible. my alarm? Um, Maybe. I guess. Here we go. Is it awesome? They're definitely gonna be able to I hear. Want, I want to see how long this goes on for before you guys get mad. <laughs> 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 no, it's it's a very slow like piano solo that. We will definitely cut and post. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I, I did that with, uh, trying to like make that, like simulate that, like a kind of slow wake up with like a really nice peaceful piano song yeah. that I actually really like. And now I cannot hear it. Like I can't <laughs> listen to it. It pisses me off. Oh, uh, yeah. It's true. Pretty much any noise that you use to wake you up, you will inevitably hate that sound. And also it totally trips you out when you hear it in other times. Like mm-hmm. I always used to use songs I really like. And then if I, those songs come on on Spotify or something, it just blows my mind. I'm just like, wait, where am I? What? Mm, hold on. Am I asleep? What's happening? That's something to be said for like the classic, like, eh, 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 yeah, eh, alarm that's clock. True. I mean, it's, it's abrupt. It's, you're not going to get your like gentle awake with like mm-hmm. the klaxon alarm. And you won't mm-hmm. hear it otherwise unless you're getting run over by a truck that's backing up. Yeah. No, I, okay, so you, I, you want maybe not noises then. Like, there is the, like, slowly brightening lights. Yeah, and, I don't know if that's necessarily enough for me, though. Well, it depends. Like, are they, like, giant spotlights pointed at your face? Maybe. And they start off really, like, dim, but eventually you, like, wake up because you're, like, sweating because the lights are on so bright. I don't know where giant, like, spotlights would fit into the aesthetic of my bedroom. Uh, yeah, that would be kind of weird. What if you just get, like, your partner to wake you up at a certain time? And they have to have their own alarm clock, which doesn't necessarily have to be as gradual and slow and calming as yours. But what if he has trouble actually getting awake from oh, the man. sound of his alarm clock? That's yeah. the point. We have to address so, two problems. No, well, we have to um, solve the first problem, which is waking up your partner. Okay. And then he can wake you up nicely and gradually. With Well, okay. Because there used to be, like in Victorian times, there used to be a guy whose name was hilariously a knocker up. And he was a guy who walked around this like town and he had a big stick. And he would hit on your windows with a stick to wake you up at a specific time. That and you'd cool. like hire him to just you'd walk down the street and be like, these houses want to be waked up at this time. And you'd go down and hit your window. And you had to come over and like tell him you're awake. Oh, man. Okay. So I just, I just reminded me, there's an app that you can download. And the point of the app is that every morning at a certain time, someone from another part of the world who also has that app calls you that and wakes so you up freaky. by calling you. Oh, so it's like, it's like a wake up call for, yeah. like in a hotel. And yeah. from what I've heard, like 60 to 70% of the people are Russian. So it's like this 85-year-old old Russian lady who's just like, good morning. <laughs> Did the people making the call get paid? Is it like this No, it's like just a, everyone no. use, everyone interuses the app. And that's a word I've been inventing today. Interuses? Yes. Yep. Okay. So I guess that's cool because it would mean that then if you don't wake up and respond, does it like no and somebody else calls you later? Or? I don't that know. That I wasn't sure about. Because I would kind of build in the whole thing with like, you know, like the puzzle alarm clocks that you have to be awake enough to like do something complex in order to get the sound to go away. Yeah, mm-hmm. or the ones that, like, roll off your bedside table and go flying across the room. You have to go find them and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Although I had a, I knew a guy in undergrad who, before an exam one time, he set up his alarm clock underneath his bed, and he woke up, like, two hours later, having crawled under the bed, unplugged it, got back into bed, and fallen back asleep. Yeah. So, I mean, that doesn't always work. 
Oh, man. My friend had the same problem. Yeah. He used to get more and more complex systems, and none of them would work. He would just turn them off and go back to sleep. You'd just, like, have to cover the floor in, like, caltrops, so you're, like, actually physically lame. Like, like he would literally have his alarm across the room, and he would have to get up, leave bed, walk across the room, turn it off, and he would still wake up in bed. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about the... You remember the Jetsons, and they had the bed, and it, like, folded up and turned into a giant... Like, it looked like a toaster, and it, like, launched him out of the top. What about no. that? Yeah, yes. like the bed folded closed, and then there's a slot at the top, and then the little thing went yeah. ding. Like Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, where the bed goes up and you slide down into your pants. Yeah, it actually like oh, physically, the, the bed like physically removes itself. You have a, a Murphy bed, but in the process of closing it, like launches you onto the floor. Yeah, get out. Yeah, you have no choice but to be awake because you have a rude awakening. Sucks for your partner. Well, they're the one who's getting <laughs> woken up, yeah. Uh, yeah, it really only works if you if the other person getting up at the same time as you. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I I think we should do something mechanical. Just I like that. More, more fun. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So how would we mechanically? Okay. Let's. I mean, they already have bed vibrators, mostly for people who are hearing impaired. They have vibrators you put under your mattress that shake your bed. Mm-hmm. So it's like and a little earthquake. That reminds me of when I was a kid and I had a friend staying with me for a week. For some reason, I got into this thing where every day I would wake him up with a different simulated natural disaster. <laughs> so like one day i would like shake his bed and yell earthquake and the next day i would like bring in a fan and yell like tornado and then like one day i like sprayed him with water <laughs> tsunami yeah. you're a weird friend <laughs> yeah it's true okay no what if we could I mean, you come up with a mechanical system but we should avoid so it's got to get you physically out of bed without necessarily waking up the other person if there is another person sleeping in your bed oh that's a good challenge yeah so what if what if the bed is like segmented and it like tilts outwards from the middle so you're like you're you're you roll mm-hmm. off onto the floor. Mm-hmm. Oh, could it okay. be like? Sorry, you had oh. an idea you were excited about. Well, okay, <laughs> you, like you know, like the one thing that always wakes me up is the sensation of falling. So what if you had a bed that, like, right before you need to wake up, it lifted itself up like slow, like slowly to a certain height, and then when you need to wake up, it just dropped by That'd like be a foot. Terrifying. Oh my god! But you would wake up so fast, and you wouldn't hurt yourself like you would falling onto the floor. That's true. Like you just you 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 make it like high, uh you make it pneumatic and it pneumatic goes up 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 and then you just yeah. like open a dump valve and it drops back down yeah. and you have to have like a soft stop at the bottom so it didn't like the whole bed didn't like shake to wake mm-hmm. the other person up. I mean, mm-hmm. on the topic of things that always wake you up, I now know that uh, if you're a new mom or a new dad, the sound of your child waking up is something that immediately wakes you up. Mm-hmm. Like my wife is at the point now where when she hears our baby making little screechy noises she makes when she's like five minutes from waking up and being hungry, she gets up and she immediately hears it. Yeah, but that's a pretty specific application. And it's also noise. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get away from noise. It's very quiet noise. Yeah, but, but you're right. But it's noise. First, you have to give everyone hormones to make them react to the sound of waking babies. Yeah, but, you know. It's an alternative. <laughs> I was thinking like robot arms that came out the side and like gently lifted you up and put you right side up <laughs> and then started walking towards you the door pat in the bum and send exactly. you off to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> i'm still picturing the jetsons like it just like pushes you into verticals and like a robotic arm with a toothbrush comes down and starts physically brushing your teeth that would wake you up pretty good <laughs> yeah do you have to wake up can you be fully dressed cleaned washed and fed without having to wake up and you just like you're sitting in your car when you wake up. How do you get fed? I don't know. NG tube. <laughs> no, that that would be scary. Okay, then you wake up in your bed with a granola bar. I don't know. <laughs> or in your, in your car with a granola bar. Sorry. <laughs> that could work. Yeah, well, that, yeah, you're still def- you're definitely getting into again. That's Wallace and Gromit, where he like just sort of slides yeah. through the process and ends up at the table with like tea and jam in front of him. Yeah. Um, or the emergency one where he goes literally into his truck. Yeah. Um. Okay. I, I think I think that's thinking too big. Okay, I'm thinking too big. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think just 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 being awake is probably a good All right. step. How about um, instead of uh, falling to scare people, like other methods of scaring them, like the what? sensation what? of like spiders walking on your arms? Why don't or something? Have to be scared. <laughs> <laughs> little, we don't have to be. A little robot Why can't arm be tickled or something. Well, that's the thing. But the tic- <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. Like the little, but the little tickling sensation of something walking on your skin would definitely wake you up. Yeah. Oh, also, a thing that, wake, that wakes me up all the time is just, like, a little tiny speaker that gets right in your ear and plays the sound of mosquito wings. Oh, my God. That would be the worst. <laughs> I would throw that thing across the room. Like, well, would you get used to it, though? Probably. That was, That's what I'm know? saying. All the noise ones, I think you would get used to too fast. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. The sensation of falling has never failed to wake me up. Little drops of water in your head? Yeah. 
That could also work, but then you end up with like a wet bed every morning. If you don't wake up very quickly, yeah. 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 Or tortured. Okay. So we need to like come up with a good how about solution. A, how about a little puppy dog that like jumps in your bed and wakes you up by licking you? And making little like little like whining noises. I want Get, that. Gets released at a very specific time yeah. of the morning every morning. I want that. All right. So are we gonna build like a robot dog? It's be like the Ibo or whatever those ones were. Only I don't know. As long as it's friendly. Well, I just just in order to make sure that it does exactly what you want to do every time and gets released and goes and does things. And isn't mm-hmm. just like a dog that lives in your bedroom that yeah. <laughs> only ever lives in the tiny room in your not bedroom. clone dogs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, not not large 3D printed dogs from the other episode. Okay. Yeah, robot dog. Okay. That's an option. What does the, like, a robot dog licking your face feel like? <laughs> Do androids dream of electric sheets? <laughs> it's like an existential question. <laughs> well, that's how a puppy would wake you up. But if a robot was doing it, that wouldn't be comfortable or fun or enjoyable. I'm or... sure we could simulate, like, the texture of a dog oh tongue. Ew. <laughs> Let's not do this anymore. I'd be horrified. Change my mind. Yeah. All right, all right. I want to fall instead. <laughs> I, I've I've got a meta solution. I think I liked your thing about the uh, the natural disasters. We take all of these things, like a like a thing that tickles you, and a thing that like a thing that gives you like makes a, a little like annoying noise in your ear, and then like the falling bed, and like maybe something in your bed that like makes it tilts it to like just enough of an angle that you like roll towards the edge, but then it stops, like it tilts the other way, so you stop before you fall out of bed. Mm-hmm. But it switches it up every morning. So you can't get used to any one particular thing. I have one last one, which is I once designed a system where um, you had servo motors attached to your window blinds. Mm. And at a certain time of the morning when you wanted to wake up, your blinds would slowly rise. So Mm -hmm. it's like the sun is rising inside your room. And if it's dark out or it's overcast or it's wintertime or whatever, um, the dimmer switch and your lights do the same thing. Yeah. So I think like that comes back to the like slowly increasing light. And you could totally fit that into one or all of these systems. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, like, the whole thing with the increasing light is that it gets you, it tells your body to prepare to be awoken. Right. It wouldn't necessarily have to be the thing that wakes you up. So you mm-hmm. could have it do that and then also add this thing at the end that, like, shakes you around or does something a little more dramatic. Mm-hmm. But if you're awake before, then you can get out of bed and turn it off. Mm-hmm. Or you can just tell it, like, snooze. Like, yeah. it could be, it's much more modernistic if we have, like, a voice activated system, like an Amazon Echo or something. Yep. Hey, bed. Oh, okay, bed. <laughs> Do not wake me up for another five minutes. The Echo does that. Yeah. The Echo has a built-in alarm, and you can be like, alarm off, and it will turn itself off. Man, what does that thing do? I don't know. Um, all right. I, so, I don't think voice commands would be, again, too good for your partner, though. Snooze! Ten minutes! <laughs> <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Honestly! All right. No, I, I think I think the, I think the meta solution is good because it means that you could then like buy modules that do different kinds of things. Ooh. Like you could you can make it yeah. modular. You have your bed and you could like attach it. Like I want the fall. I want falls. I want rolls. I want like wind in my face. Like these are all the various like modules you can install, and different ones will come out at different times. Mm-hmm. You have like theme packs. You have the natural disasters theme pack. You can yeah. have like the like fear theme pack with like spiders and like oh, all and sorts then, of stuff. And then, and then and then if you connected the internet, you could have like uh, events for specific things so like there could be like a christmas themed like wake up event for christmas morning <laughs> santa Aww. santa noises on the roof yeah exactly like thumping and stuff like Hall- halloween the morning of halloween like a really like spooky voice like wakes you up in a spooky way Ugh. well i was gonna go with like christmas carol but yeah no you'd like <laughs> you'd sign up for something like that like but, but by choice i yeah, guess yeah exactly I think that'd be so cool. And then, yeah, it, it would allow you to then, like, download new things. You could create, like, a marketplace of, like, here's an idea, a way you can use these modules with a new, like, this new setup in order to wake yourself up in a new way. Yeah. I like it. And I like it, that idea. It avoids it. I think because that's the big issue with all of these is, like, you might get used mm-hmm. to it and learn to sleep through it. Mm-hmm. And that this is at least, it mixes it up enough that you'd probably, it would work most of the time. Mm-hmm. Cool. Right. Cool. Job done. I like, I like it. it. Go team. All right, so now that we're out of our brain engineering, as we're calling it, the yeah. engineering thing at the beginning, let's talk about the big news. We have a new segment. Yeah. Segment is getting paid. Yay. <laughs> we are actually, we got a sponsor. Yeah. We have money. Well, or we, we have we have less negative money in our... <laughs> we're, we're, we're slowly recouping the money we spent on this podcast. Our already. velocity has changed. Yes. Um. So yeah, we... Uh, this week, we're being sponsored by Quanzer Incorporated, which is a company that specializes in engineering education tools. Um, hence, our, hence our topic this week. Hence our topic this week is mm-hmm. an introductory topic. We're going to talk about engineering education. 
Um, and so as a kind of a byproduct of our sponsorship, what we're going to do is every week talk about something that we learned thanks to Kwanzaa. This will be in future weeks instead of us talking about how we suddenly have a sponsor. Yeah. And yes. we'll probably have some w- music or something. Yeah. Something, something to Gizmodi indicate that it's pizzazz. Yeah. To indicate we've entered the ad space. All right. That's the that was awesome. Yep. And then can we play, can we, do we then, we then play that in reverse at the end of the ad? So you know, yeah. Coming okay. Back. Go Pete. Cool. Job done. Okay. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Kwanzer is giving us some money to mention their name as is the like, I don't know, the custom, Standard. the custom with ads. <laughs> That's how sponsorship works. Yeah. But they haven't really given us, like, they don't have an ad read. So we're just going to talk about things that are cool that yeah. are related to the things that Kwanzer does because they yeah. do some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, this is only cool to me, probably, but this week I was reading about uh, control systems and how you design control systems along the lines of, like, our PID episode from a while ago. And I learned, probably relearned, but it's been a while, so I'll just say I learned it for the first time, that uh, if you identify dominant poles in a system and you want to design a controller, then really all you have to do is uh, move those dominant poles to a point where you get the response that you want, and then take the rest of the poles and move them further away from the imaginary axis. You're welcome. So if you wanted to know what... Actually, it's a real axis, but anyway, go on. (laughs) Um, you just confused everyone. It, it, I it, it made perfect sense until you said that. I'll cut that out. No, no, and you have to leave it in. <laughs> so yeah, things like that. Those are the kinds of things you could learn with the stuff that Kwanzaa sells. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyone so, else have something they learned this week, or is it just me? I think we'll we'll we'll, hold we'll do up. one a week. We're, okay, we got several weeks of this coming up. So. Now that yeah. everyone's confused, we'll move on. Yeah. No, we're not expecting people to necessarily understand what we've learned, but mm-hmm. it is a thing that you'll learn. And uh, yeah, thanks, Kwanzaa. Yay. If you, Yay! If you're a dean of engineering. Check them out. <laughs> if you're if people who will hold the purse strings at a university, yeah. they want to hear from you. Yeah. All right. So on to the more general topic of engineering education then. Sure. This is and this is engineering education from the point of view of we mentioned this a little bit in our episode on uh inspiring the yeah. future engineers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We so we're sort of I think the the theme of this is going to be what's wrong with engineering education now. Mm-hmm. Or at least some of the things that are wrong with it. Yeah, as people mm-hmm. who who work in the field of engineering education, what are we trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. What are the problems that are out there that we're trying to solve? Yeah. So, before we get too far into it, we're going to define a couple like like outside of the bounds things we're going to talk about later. Yeah. Because we want, like, we want to talk at some point about like women in, enge- in engineering, yep. but I think that's going to be a topic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then engineering silos and like engineering disciplines and the issues with that are going to be also another thing we're going to talk about at some point in the future. So those are outside of this is this is more like in the classroom and the transition into the classroom for university. And also as a methodology for teaching engineering in a little while, very soon actually we're going to talk about branch branching out of the traditional engineering classroom and teaching people engineering and other fields and in other scenarios like hackathons and stuff like that yeah mm-hmm. so is that that's also outside the scope of this discussion or is this yep. in okay and yeah. that'll be before or after this episode depending on how things go i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah it'll depend on what this will be either in the past or the future we, we do this a lot yeah. we call call forward or back depending on <laughs> when this it'll be in the future released. it'll be in the future it'll be in the future okay good was it in the future <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> it's in the future now, and it will still be in the future by the time this episode gets out. All right. So that that all aside, um, I think we should talk about the transition. Like one of the issues that we identified was the transition from high school to university. Yeah, mm. that's a good one. Because sure. especially in high school, they really hype up engineering as a discipline through like the t- like the tech the tech departments and stuff like that. But I'm not sure that they necessarily represent what engineering is in university. No, mm-hmm. not at all. Um, like that was our, our big thing was you get to you get to first year and it's all math all the time. Yeah, for mm-hmm. like a year and a half. Yeah, so I mean, I can start there. So if we want to start with that problem, which is classically called the math problem, um, it's part, the only math problem. No, it's called the math problem. Oh. Literally called by whom? Um, people in engineering education. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, part of the issue is that, to me at least. Um, branching from high school to university is very difficult. People come from different schools, from different places, with different levels of experience, and uh, have no idea what engineering actually is. This mm-hmm. is a problem that I actually, at one point, was thinking about starting a company to solve, where 
people coming into university, even nowadays in engineering, don't know what engineers do. They don't know what they're getting into. They don't know what is going to happen when they get to engineering. They think what they're going to do is learn how to build robots and quad rotors and fly rocket ships and all sorts of fun stuff that they see on Mythbusters and other shows that make it seem like it's the coolest thing. And then they hit first year, and it's basically a year and a half of math. Mm-hmm. And that I is mean, not what they signed up for. Let's be honest. Engineering is the coolest thing, but you do have to get through a year and a half of math before right. you get to the cool part. Yeah. And so at that point, the problem is that after first year, a lot of people drop out because yeah. they didn't sign on for that. They signed on for cool, sexy, fun stuff. <laughs> and uh which yeah I know. yeah yeah no it's it's true and i mean the, and i think that's probably I, that affects all the engineering disciplines but it it has I, I think it has an especially big effect on disciplines where you're getting into like doing physical like doing physics analysis and stuff so they yeah. they think that you need to get through at least traditionally the idea is that you need to get through like um, like calculus one, calculus two, ODEs and PDEs, like ordinary and partial differential equations before you really get into doing real analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that was, I, I for one, like I failed calc one. I, I had to retake calc one and which is ridiculous because then I went on to do great in differential equations, which yeah. is way more complex and builds on calculus. Yeah. But I, by then they were starting to actually teach it as an engineering course. And so you mm-hmm. started to see like, this is what you'll do with it as opposed to these are some letters that represent numbers. And that's yeah. a good point that you just brought up because a lot of what the solution comes down to, at least from what the sort of stuff that we do is this is what you're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. That is a question that comes up over and over again as the motivation for why a lot of times the approaches we use nowadays really appeal to students is we give them an idea of what they're going to do with this skill. Why am I learning this math? What's the point? Mm-hmm. It's answering that question. But also something that you touched on that's interesting is that a lot of times these courses lead into a whole realm of other stuff they have to do as requirements for everything else they want to do for getting to that fun stuff. Yeah. And uh, because the requirements, if they, this happened to my roommate when I was in first year, he failed one course in the second semester of first year, which was systems. And because he failed that course, he had to redo that course when it was offered the following fall. So in the meantime, he did a bunch of other courses that weren't requirements. But by the time he got around to doing it again, he had nothing else to take because everything relied on having finished that course first. Mm-hmm. And then he was so far behind, he just dropped out. They bottlenecked the, the yeah. prerequisites. They bottlenecked the, the whole program on one course. That seems unnecessary. Yeah. And I mean, it was a useful course, but I don't think you had to bottleneck the entire program on it. Yeah. Well, I guess, okay, so that's where we'll touch on, but we won't get into too far, like the silos between departments as well, is that Mm -hmm. if you had more lateral movement around and the ability to do, to take courses from different uh, disciplines and to move around to avoid bottlenecks like that, then it might make it easier for people to find a path that works Mm -hmm. for them. And I mean, part of that is also that you have to be practical to a certain extent too, where there's a lot of stuff to be great if you could do, but it just isn't feasible. Like Mm -hmm. if, if you wanted to have Departments all work together in one big happy family. It doesn't work like that at universities. If you want to have, for instance, a great idea that we've had in the past where it's like, okay, cool, let's start first year. Students come in and they get this really exciting project. Like you guys are going to build an autonomous car. And then for the next couple of years, they work their way through everything they need to know to build an autonomous car. So they start with all of the math, but the math is based on autonomous car math. And then they start Mm. building up like, how are we going to do the control? Okay, we have to do this and this and this and this and this. And basically every course is centered on a problem that exists in that grand challenge they have. Hmm. You can't do that either. No. <laughs> well, it's... I mean, what would be – okay, like that – you can't do that without completely changing the way that the that – The universities function. Is yeah. 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 Well, okay. I guess we should we should, um, we should look at one of the underlying issues that the universities have is because uh, engineering programs need to be accredited. And the accrediting yep. bodies require very specific sets of courses and very specific things to be taught. Mm-hmm. And those things are generally like a lot of that, like stuff you take in the first year is stuff that is required for accreditation and is not, uh, it's not exactly like it's not a lot of fun, but everybody who has ever taken engineering, an engineering program from an accredited program has to take those courses. Mm-hmm. And they tend to front load those courses because they want to get them out of the way so that you can then do cooler stuff later on once yep. you've built on those ideas. Yeah. But I mean, those, to a certain extent, those courses don't really need to be front loaded as much as they are. Yeah. No, that's true. So, I mean, if we summarize then the, our first premise, it's that essentially a lot of the problems in engineering education come from the fact that 
you have a beginning, a ramping middle, and an end. Where at the beginning, you have students coming in from somewhere not knowing anything. So to start teaching them the fundamentals from day one, assuming they don't know anything and they get bored, Mm -hmm. you have to ramp them from there all the way through their four or five years of engineering where they're learning more and more complex things, building year after year. And the first part is inherently boring because the last part is interesting, but also complicated. And then at the end of it, they need to have the skills to either go into industry or graduate school. And the question is, do they have those skills they actually need? Is what they're learning actually relevant? And that, again, is something that comes up oftentimes for us where concepts that are often taught in a lot of courses are just straight up pointless. Like, Mm -hmm. they're never going to use that concept again. It's somewhat interesting, but no one really needs to know it. Mm -hmm. But it's expected that you're going to know it and everyone has to come out of engineering having learned that concept. Anyone in the real world is going to either look it up or have a tool to do it for them. But for but they are still taught how to manually do this stuff, mm-hmm. and it's pointless. Well, so there's also going to be pressure. You're saying going into industry or grad school, there's going to be pressure for anyone who tries to really overhaul the way you teach undergraduate engineering that they're going to be seen as sort of messing with the fundamentals of, okay, well, I know these yeah. universities still do it like the way I went through school and the way I went through school worked. So. Mm-hmm. You've got your new crazy system where you're turning everything on its head. I don't know if your graduates are going to be on the same caliber. Or like we Mm -hmm. talked about um, last week where there's a lot of skills that you have coming out of mechanical engineering and civil engineering. You need to know in the real world how things work, how you actually get stuff built and done. And they don't teach those things. And they continue not to teach those things. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's gaps at the beginning and the end. Well, because I think, again, the the accreditation, a lot of that I think comes down to the accreditation again because it's their – they have to teach all of these general concepts so you never get into specific concepts that are key to doing a particular job unless you get that particular elective in exactly. like fourth year. And a lot yeah. of it also is because it's a bureaucratic system. The accreditation systems and also, I mean, this is the same in high school with the way that they do curriculum for provinces and countries in high school. You have a panel of people who are authorities who dictate what's useful and what isn't useful. And usually those consist of educators, like senior teachers and professors. You have industry representatives. And I've been on some of these panels. Um, and then sometimes, especially in high school, I don't think necessarily university, but especially in high school, you have politicians. Mm. And the politicians are getting their cues from like parents and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So in high school, it becomes an issue. In universities, it's a little bit less of an issue, but it's still there where there are people who have um, agendas and have things that they think should be taught or should be done a certain way that don't necessarily have ideas that are consistent with, for instance, what would would be sort of the grand idea of people who are hiring engineers or the grand idea of people who are experts in how the most effective tools for teaching particular topics. Well, okay, but that opens an interesting question is, is, could some of the problem be, or some of the solution be in high school? Cause it's, I mean, high school is, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. In high school, they're doing a lot of, um, there's a lot of cool stuff that gets people in- excited about STEM and it gets people excited about going to university and becoming engineers, but it's not really built into the curriculum. It's not in the classroom. Yeah. It's things no, that are happening outside no, yeah. of the classroom. The bonus stuff, yeah. I, uh, I have, a, as you can tell, I have a lot of gripes on many things. And one of them is that in high school, you get math, straight up called math. Mm-hmm. You get science, called science. You get technology, called technology. You don't get engineering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not taught as a course. It's amalgamated into a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Which makes it inherently confusing. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, if you could have an engineering, like engineering math, math geared towards engineering, um, or at least like tie in, in math and things like that, the a more of a sense of where you're going with that. Yeah. Or you start teaching the core principles of engineering, like good design paradigms and stuff like that, that lead, bleed through all the different aspects of engineering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there are probably places where that happens. I mean, that you're, you were talking about the, like the big project and everything happens every year around, like the things you learn are related to that project. There is, there is like a, an education paradigm whose name I forget, but I, I've been told about it. That where you like you have a whole school and the school is built around you have a cohort each grade mm-hmm. and each grade's cohort has a project and everything you do is geared towards that project and mm-hmm. that project follows you through from like grade two all the way to grade like twelve yeah and you're constantly working the things you learn have to do with that yeah and, and so, like technical schools and like polytechnic high schools and stuff like that I'm sure they have more closely industrially relevant courses that you take on. Um, and the sort of stuff that I did in high school that no one else did, like electronics and automotive and stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's another thing that's interesting. Um, I, I found in undergrad that there was a really, there, there was a great dearth of lab, like hands-on experiences. We went through, we went through entire courses that were like, we did an entire chemistry course without ever like touching any mm-hmm. kind of, any kind of equipment. And like that gave me absolutely no reason to want to continue taking chemistry. Yeah. I have taught graduate level control systems courses and had eight out of 10 students never implementing a control system in the real world ever. Mm-hmm. So these, are, these are students who are in graduate level controls. They're studying controls as a master's or a PhD. They have never implemented a controller mm-hmm. other than in the simulation. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, especially like some of the math that you're doing, you can do some really cool stuff with the math. And it wouldn't be terribly difficult to give students a hands-on experience of where that math is applied. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, okay, I say it wouldn't be terribly difficult. The, the reason it's not you don't have all these labs is because labs like they take extra manpower to operate and, money yeah. take, and they're yeah. really expensive yeah. to maintain. But I mean, even like I took a I had a a dynamics like physics dynamics course in in undergrad, and we built we had to build like deceleration devices out of popsicle sticks and elastics. Like mm-hmm. I don't think that required I don't their their budget for that can't have been huge. And something like that where you had to do the analysis that like you used math to do the analysis and your 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 mark came out of how well your analysis matched the real experiment. Yeah. I mean hands-on problems and challenges are definitely one of the answers. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to go through an undergraduate program where every year we did a full semester design project, um wow. multidisciplinary across all of engineering. Mm. So you're working with students from CAM and your students from bio and you're building a project together and uh that happened every year with different emphasis. So you started with a, a stupid problem that has no real relevance to anything. It was just the act of designing something and building it. Mm-hmm. And then you would go from there into more rigorous design and having to do proposals and calls for proposals and budgets and stuff like that, having to do full 3D CAD and mm-hmm. feasibilities and stuff like that. But yeah. you start with the basics and then you go from there through more and more complex design until in fourth year, when you finally hit your capstone project, you've done design. You've done these projects before enough to know the process and know what's expected. Yeah. That's we, awesome. We did a similar thing because like systems design at Waterloo is similar. It's every term you have a design project and it's got a theme. But I think that's – we went through strange – like we went through outliers in the engineering yeah. field in terms yeah. of design. Like they were both design-oriented programs. Mm-hmm. Especially the multidisciplinary aspect was definitely unique for the school I went to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and that's something – so – uh, Abby, you're the only one here who went through like a traditional. Yeah, I definitely didn't experience that in terms of uh, design projects each year or any sort of interdisciplinary work. Uh, it was all math, 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 capstone. <laughs> so here's a question. You're the closest to um, undergrad mm-hmm. and also the one who didn't go into grad school yep. for lack of a better option. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, coming out of undergrad, what did you feel prepared to do as a career? If we're being totally honest, very little which sounds probably awful, but um, I felt like a lot of my education was, hey, I'm just going to memorize this stuff and then I'm going to like throw it up all over a test and then, hey, I got a grade, mm-hmm. move on. Yeah. And I felt like, uh, especially even talking to older graduates or people who are in co-op programs describing what they had done, I was like, I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Did I learn that? I probably did, but I don't remember. And again, we talked about this last week. Um, co-op is hugely important. Oh, yeah. If you have co-op experience, then you actually have a skill that you can actually potentially use once you graduate for a career. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's that is... exactly what uh, what we were talking about in the episode on web design. Co-op, it, like if you have a yeah. co-op experience, it, it sort of informs a lot of what you view as being the, your path in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And knowing what you're capable of. And that, that's something that is gaining traction. Like more and more engineering schools have at least, if not a an intermittent, like several co-op terms, they've got at least like an experience, like a professional experience year or something like that. You do, yeah. you do 12 or... Mm-hmm. Like Waterloo is weird because we do they do like four month co ops they do a whole bunch of little co ops as opposed to like one big one but mm-hmm. anything like that where you have a chance to go out and see what's in the real world yeah. and, and I think that like that gets at something that is fundamental to the tying into the real world and that's what's missing from a lot of that math in the first couple of years you can see like mm-hmm. there will be applications of that math in the real world but. It's hard to see that until you get out and you say, okay, no, I have to design. Yeah. I have to select a valve or something. You yeah. don't have to go full Monty either on what we were talking about with having an overarching, um, like method, like not methodology, but the application for everything you're doing. You can do it on a course by course basis just with better examples. Like yeah. there are usually examples. If you read most mathematical textbooks, 
they'll have examples of stuff in the back, especially for physics and stuff like that, where it's sort of like, you have a dog who's sliding on a watermelon and he's <laughs> how, like how much friction is there? Like they have, but it is that bizarre. Like the examples that you're having, you're working them on paper and pencil. And the examples are generally kind of bizarre. Hey Pete, two cats sit on a roof. Which one falls off? <laughs> no, which, yeah. Which one falls off first? The one with the lowest mew. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Uh, I had to get that one. Okay. Because it doesn't matter. Like the, the the examples are viewed as being irrelevant. Like when I was in high school and I was taking calculus, the example that they always used was a wow, which was a watermelon on wheels. Like every example he was like, let's say that you have a watermelon on wheels. Because mm. it doesn't matter what you have. Yeah. There's no context mm-hmm. that really makes any difference. What if, yeah. you, if you have a perfectly spherical cow in a vacuum? <laughs> <laughs> in, in a frictionless vacuum. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's also part of the problem is that like, when you're trying to teach simple the concepts on a simple level, you have to abstract the problem away enough that you can do meaningful analysis of it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you get to the point where you have you have a thermodynamics question. It's like you are like grilling a hot dog. Assume a hot dog is basically a <laughs> cylinder of water. Assume <laughs> that the fire is perfectly even. It's like none of these things are real world applications. Yeah. But if you try to do it the real world, you need a supercomputer mm-hmm. to figure. But it. I think that you can do a better job of making it seem like something that is useful. So I mean, like that's why that overarching project makes sense because you can take that and break it up into smaller and smaller portions of the overall system to say if you learn this concept of why partial differential equations are important. You can solve stuff like in aerodynamics if you're flying and if you're designing an airplane and the wings need to be able to give a certain amount of lift. That's where partial differential equations is important. Well, mm-hmm. I, 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 that was in, in PDEs. I mean, the, 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 the example that they always give you at the beginning is you've got, you've got two tanks, like one and one has salt water flowing into it and it's flowing into another tank that's got fresh water flowing into it. How much salt do you end up with like in the solution in the second tank? And it's like, you're never going to have like a pair of. You're tanks never going to have water. two tanks. But, <laughs> but that being said, like it's even that was so much better than like okay, you have the formula like die, yeah. die by die x. Like what mm-hmm. is it? Like yeah. evaluate x. Yeah, and it's okay. I can do that, but why? And at least you've seen it. Like I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was scary to us all through undergrad that I still think I should have a better understanding of what it is. But and because it, it comes up all the time, mm-hmm. but it's still like I kind of don't really know what's going on. And a good example for me is eigenvalues and eigenvectors. <laughs> like that's a thing you, you learn again and again. It and, never really makes sense, and your mind recoils every time yeah. you see it in print. You're and then like, every now and then you come across it, and, and you're just like, "Oh yeah, eigenvalues." I'm those, sure those are a thing. Yeah, I came across it the other day in terms of like how Facebook and Google do searching. The the way that they do graph searches is based on solving eigenvalue problems. Oh man, weird. I I do remember that eigenvalues and eigenvectors were important for something, but I don't even remember where yet. And it always comes up. It, it comes up in controls. It comes up in a lot of stuff. But it's again like it's presented, like you said, in such a theoretical way with just a bunch of mathematical problems that you never understand what it's used for or why it's useful or what the point is. It just becomes a scary thing that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, okay. So that's an interesting point as well because. One of the things that I, that a lot of people don't like about things like fluid dynamics or thermo is that they, they hand wave away a lot of things in the background that don't matter for practical applications. And I almost wish that that was done more often. Mm -hmm. It's like, here is, here is something that there is, there's a tool for solving this particular problem. But right now we can skip over it by telling you there is a tool for solving this problem. Now let's look at the bigger problem. And I think that there is a mentality in, uh, engineering education that you need to learn all of the individual bits before you do the solve the big problem, which is not how the real world works. No, no. I, I don't need to know eigenvectors. I just need to know that there's somebody on my team that knows eigenvectors. Yeah. It's like yeah. I was saying in the PID control episode, you don't need to know most of the time how to do full blown PID control design because most systems, there is a built in algorithm that you just say, tune my system and mm-hmm. it spits out values that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's certainly value to understanding what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you can't look at the big problem in spite of not having learned what goes behind the scenes. Yeah. I, if I wasn't doing my yeah. current job, I didn't need to take four controls courses, mm-hmm. which I did. Yeah. I didn't need to. No. Except yeah. that I, now I'm actually using it. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of processes that, I mean, you're never going to use in the real world. And yeah, there's a tool. Like there's just something that'll spit out values or do the project, like the work for you. So why do you have to sit there and spend a week going through the process and learning about it? Um, 
if you mm-hmm. actually just fundamentally understand what's happening, but you don't actually have to do it. Yeah. That happened once when we were teaching um, actuators, like motors and stuff like that, where mm-hmm. there was the the classic question of, okay, we're going to teach how brush DC motors work. Are we going to start with like the theory of this is the inside of a brush DC motor? This is what's happening. This is how the fields are getting induced and stuff like that. And I was like, straight up, no. Like yeah. the, no, no one ever needs to know what's going on inside a brush DC motor. They just buy them. Yeah. What you need to know is how to use it, how it, how you control it, what you do with it once you buy it, how you spec it out, what's important when you're purchasing one and using it in a particular application. Yeah. What's not important is what goes on inside the silver box. Well, yeah, yeah. We, we had we had an entire course on like magnetics and and how magnetic fields work, and I didn't retain any of it. Mm-hmm. Like it's I I. I and I worked with those tools, but it's it, because it's such minutia. And unless you're, unless you work for a company that makes DC motors and you yeah. need to know magnetic flux and it'll, there will be people who need to know sure. that. But again, I think that all comes, that really comes back to those accreditation programs. And they mm-hmm. say, these are the things you need, the, the boxes you need to check. You need mm-hmm. to check graph theory. You need to check magnetic flux. You need yep. to check, um, I, like, and it'll depend on your program. But, uh, I, I think that there's, there's a lot to be said for, uh, a combination of what you are suggesting where you have a, like a central theme, but also the idea of trying not to front load those, those things. Yeah. Like you say, this is a problem which you will solve with PDEs. You haven't learned PDEs yet, but once you solve this part of the problem with partial differential equations, you can then do this to it and you can make this kind of analysis and, mm-hmm. and, and then learn those programs. Like, then you get to pers- like differential equations. You say, Oh yeah, I remember this application where we did this. Okay. Now let's learn how that was done. Mm-hmm. Like what's inside the box. I think it really helps when you give people context for the problem before they learn about the, the math, like you were just saying, mm-hmm. because it keeps them maybe more open minded. Like, Oh, there's a reason I'm learning this other than like, let's shove knowledge down your throats because we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being like coming up with more interesting. Uh, examples for things that you can do with it that mm-hmm. are not. I mean, there's there are there's always the traditional example for everything, and it gets reused because hey, it's new students, we don't need a new example. But I think that's maybe the wrong way to look at it. It's, yeah, we should always be looking for new ways and ways that are. Like you were talking about the electric car as a as a concept that you could focus on, coming up with ways that are. Uh, topics that are important to the students coming in right now in terms yeah. of things that they want to do and mm-hmm. things that they're interested in. Yeah, examples they actually care about. I mean, it's, yeah. it's going to, it, that's putting a lot of load on professors and things like that. But there is something to be said there for professors to work closer to the way that like high school teachers do where they are creating a lot of material and sharing it around and coming up with examples that lots that other people can use. So it's not just like, okay, I need to come up with a new course plan every year. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. We see like, you can sort of like see which way the wind is blowing. And then you have a, you have a community of people who are developing curriculum that is key to, or is tied into what is popular right now and what is going to keep people interested right now. Yeah. yeah. And the best courses that I took were ones where the professors would reach out to graduates and ask like, what are the things that you guys are using now that you think I should be teaching? Mm-hmm. And they would come back and say, you need to teach LabVIEW. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to do a module on LabVIEW. Mm-hmm. Like this, I'm going to take information from the field, from people who are using these every day and figure out what are the new and upcoming topics that they need to know how they work and what they're doing and mm-hmm. how to piece them together. But that, that like still isn't happening. Like there's no one in universities teaching how you design 3D VR systems or mm-hmm. how you work with the technology that's up and coming, how you do AI at the level that we're doing AI now with AlphaGo and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't exist in undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, it depends on, on what pro- some programs are starting to specialize and you're starting to see very specific. Uh, they're keeping up with the real world when you're doing things like um, like UX design and things that are hot right now. Programs that specialize in that are trying to keep up more with what's in the, in the field because they want their graduates because it's such a moving target. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And things like, I think a lot of software development like programs and that have to be a lot more agile because if you graduate a student that only knows how to program in C, then they're going to be kind of screwed once they get out and try to, mm-hmm. are, are trying to work. Or, in, it, or it falls away from universities. Like that, that panel that I was on where they were talking to industry about what's important to teach in these courses, that was for college like for a community college mm-hmm. um, because they're the ones who are closest to industry mm-hmm. and really care about what the trends are. Mm-hmm. 
Um, something else that I, I just remembered that I wanted to bring up. It's off topic though, was another idea that we played around with that comes, gets back to your previous, uh, comment that you had that was talking about how, um, a lot of the stuff that they're teaching is hyper specific and you'll never come, come across again. It's never really useful unless you're working in a DC motor factory. Mm-hmm. Um, I was conceptualizing with some people at one point about how you could theoretically, um, in the future, dumb down all of engineering or repurpose all of engineering into a system where engineering is a two-year program that just teaches core engineering skills things like design things like physics and mathematics and um probably at that point programming and stuff like that that it bridges all disciplines of engineering Mm -hmm. and then you could maybe do like a one-year specialization after that in your particular subset of engineering that you have an interest in that just has to do with that core engineering group and what is done across all of that broad field. Mm-hmm. And then you go straight into an internship in somebody who does the job you want. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's directly like I am now working with a guy who has the job I want to have, learning the skills that he has in that job. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that gets a lot in, closer to like trades where mm-hmm. you, you learn, you learn yeah. the basic skills. You do apprenticeship. You and, yeah. And you go out and you actually do work. Cause the thing is, um, and this comes up a lot in engineering education. There's been a lot of pendulum swings in how things are taught. At the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th century, um, engineering was in the machine shop. Like you, if you were doing engineering, you were in the shop building things, using lathes and milling machines. That was engineering. Mm-hmm. And after a certain point when there was like a scientific revolution and it became very important, especially around the atomic age and the dawn of that sort of uh, field of hard science, um, there was a feeling that engineering was not scientific enough. And so it swung in the opposite direction where it became almost completely theoretical and there was almost no difference between traditional theoretical physics and chemistry and engineering. Mm-hmm. And then again, the pendulum started to swing again with transistors and computers where it went back to um, hands-on practical skills that you needed to do things like computing and stuff like that. And it's sort of, to a certain extent nowadays, peaking a little bit in terms of, um, once again, we've gone towards theory where there's a lot of theoretical applications, a lot of sort of things that have been taught for years, and there's a lot of inertia there in that pendulum for how we think engineering should be done. And it's more and more no longer relevant to what engineers do. Well, I guess, can we, uh, to take a different tack, one of the things that, like, everybody, it's it's kind of cliche at this point, but everyone that you talk to who goes through engineering seems to be of the opinion that one of the one of the key skills that you learn in engineering is how to learn new things quickly like on the spot mm-hmm. and to like is, is the the basic understanding that you have that you need to in order to pick up new concepts and new applications really quickly yeah so i'm i'm wondering if that could be the tack that would you could take where you focus on yeah we are doing a calculus course and yes it is dry it is it doesn't have very like very specific but part of the one of the skills that you need to develop is the ability to under like to uh internalize abstractions of concepts and to mm-hmm. internalize these tools because this is the kind of tool that you're going to need it may not be this may not be calculus it may be uh it may be vector mathematics it may be linear algebra but the the ability to take a specific t- a problem like game theory and then abstract it to the point where it's just a spreadsheet and that mm-hmm. spreadsheet has mathematical meaning, but that is a skill. And mm-hmm. it's not really a skill that we ever acknowledge. We don't mm-hmm. want it. Like that is one of the skills you develop. And I think one of the reasons that I improved in math over the years was not so much my, I had a better understanding of math, but I had a better ability to quickly grasp abstractions of real world problems into letters and numbers. And that yeah. is, and that is a skill that is important, but it's never really acknowledged. It is true. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, never really felt and still don't that i was strong in math Mm -hmm. i've never really felt like i was someone who is mathematically inclined maybe because i was for a while surrounded by people who were really heavy into math and Mm -hmm. would like i i worked behind um a friend of mine who was doing his phd and he would literally come into the office sit down read three pages of a book and then go home and that Mm -hmm. book was just like it was like weird manifold spaces and (laughs) lie graphs and like the craziest like depths of um, physics and mathematics. And uh, I was never like, I could barely get, find my way about remembering how to do the more simple mathematical operations that you do in engineering. But you're right. I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that 
when you get to the point that you get to in engineering education where you've gone through six or seven math courses and you've internalized all of those skills to the point where you don't feel like it's math anymore, it's just sort of, like you said, describing things using letters and numbers, but it's so ingrained that doesn't seem hard to the point where you think that you don't know what you're doing anymore. Yeah. That uh, you're right. Like that's a skill that you pick up just by being exposed to it. And like one of the, like a course that I took, I took an algorithms course in, in undergrad. And one of the things I took away from that, that was like one of the most helpful was he, they ran the course as you're going to program in this course and you're going to program in Java, but we're not teaching you Java. You're You're going to teach yourself Java and then you're going to answer the questions in Java. And it was, it was a pain. Like everyone hated it. But it was also like that, I think I, the skills that I picked up there in having to figure out how I was going to program in Java while I was also learning what I was doing with the programming was invaluable in a way that even the understanding of the algorithms that I was doing was not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that skill was, and I, I don't know how, whether you can focus on that, but if we can come like a way to, to build those experiences and come up with those core competencies that are not like, can you take the integral of something? But mm-hmm. it's, can you understand how an integral relates to the real world? So here's, yeah. a, here's a summary then that sort of brings some of this together. Um, a lot of what happens now in universities, which are these skills we're talking about, are they do give you the core tools and competencies that you need to be able to understand generally how the discipline works. So in programming, you don't learn languages, you learn how to learn languages. In math, you don't learn like hard math. You learn how to understand math instinctively. Um, and I'm sure the same applies to civil and electrical and mechanical engineering where you're picking up broad skills that help you understand how these things work. You get from mechanical, you get instinct. You understand whether or not something will work properly by looking at it without having to test it or figure it out or design it a few hundred times to see what, how things will fit together. You look at something and you say, this is not going to work. Well, I mean, like, Abby, you're a good example. Both, like, both Pete and I came out of programs that are interdisciplinary and they kind of lend themselves to education and to, like, thinking outside of the traditional box of engineering. But you went through a pretty traditional program, but you ended up in the same sort of place. It, it does, it, it's not a nearly as clear a path. Like, how do you, how do you get, you said you, it was a co-op. Thing, yeah, but. I mean that's that's really the only reason why I ended up in the position that I ended up in. Um, but it, without like, that co-op, I wouldn't have. I probably would have done something way more traditional in terms of electrical. But I mean, like the but the skills that you applied, like the not the ability to absorb information and to pick up, like since you've since you've been working, you've picked up a bunch of skills that are completely unrelated to what you did in your undergrad. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you probably wouldn't have been able to. Before no. having gone through mm-hmm. engineering. Yeah, because engineering kind of teaches you, like, we're going to throw a problem at you and you're not going to know everything you need to know to solve the problem. And that's okay. And in high school, that probably freaked you out, not having all the tools necessary to solve something. But in engineering and then in university, you learn, like, on the spot, like you were saying, like, you, you learn the mm-hmm. skill of learning things on your own and mm-hmm. quickly. And that is a natural fit of a university. They teach you broad skills because they don't know where you're going to end up. Yeah. Like yeah. when you're when you're taking chemical engineering, they don't know if you're going to work in a factory or you're going to work in a petroleum plant or they they have no idea what you're going to do and so they teach you broad skills but, that give you the understanding of how that field functions so generally that you can apply that theoretically once you get into the real world after minimal to probably more extensive amount of training. Mm-hmm. The problem is that that is the missing link is that once you finish undergrad and you go out into the world it's the same way as you feel when you finish high school and you go into university you have a broad understanding of how things work but you have no idea how to do a job yeah it's and a that's, scary thing that's the scary part and that's why why i think maybe the pendulum needs to swing a little bit more back towards hard skills where when you finish undergrad let's say in programming you know how to learn a language and you know generally how programming works but if you try to apply for a job where they're like okay i want you to do design node.js websites you're like i uh, what <laughs> and so it's a there's that missing link where it's a little bit too floating in the wind when you finish well mm-hmm. like but the the sense that you that abby you're saying that they give you the idea that you're going to be faced with a problem and not necessarily given all the skills to solve it is directly opposed by the fact that they seem to be unwilling to allow you to take a course that builds on an idea that you haven't learned yet that's true. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, that, that isn't necessarily a problem. Like I, I took, I took, you take cross curricular courses that have, if, if you get it, you have, yeah. to, you, have to, you have to go and you haven't taken the first year course that it builds on, 
but it is tangentially related to what you're doing in your undergrad and you have enough knowledge to be able to pick it up, then that's not really like mm-hmm. in, in my, in my grad school, I took a, a research design course, but it was in sociology and they were like, I had, had taken one course in sociology before that, but it's, it, it was picking up those skills of research design and then also picking up the context of sociology at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily a problem. It's, yeah. It, I mean, it requires a lot more experimentation to figure out what you can and cannot Mm -hmm. build on or what you can and cannot sort of gloss over until a later time. And just like co-op, it's those specific experiences that inform what you think you want to do. Because like, let's say you take one co-op term, you work at one place and you gain a little bit of experience and you think, oh, this is really cool. I think I'd like to do this when I finish. And you end up doing that for 40 years. Mm. It's sort of like um, dating. You're always wondering, like, I wonder if something else would have been more interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's the, like, I ended up doing a master's degree using NeuroFuzzy because I took one NeuroFuzzy course in fourth year because they happened to offer it and was like, this is badass. I, mm-hmm. I want to do this some more. <laughs> and like, it's again, it's like what we were talking about with Phil. Like you get into a situation where you've done one thing and you're like, this is kind of cool. Let's do this some more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and But you, unfortunately, that always seems to happen in like the second half of fourth year. It's, yeah. always, it's always that one court when you're, when you're filling. And it happens to be the one that you end up being able to take, or it happens to be the co-opposition that you get hired to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we gave, if we gave students more experience in a more broad range of specific scenarios, it's more likely that they'd end up coming across something that's really interesting and engaging. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the problem is having no idea what type of jobs are out there. You yeah. Know, like, I have a degree in this. I don't know what that means. Like, I, didn't I don't know, know what UX I'm going to do. design existed until this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff out there that you're never going to, you're never going to see. And I, and we, we can touch on that a, a little bit. And when we, when we talk about the silos as well, because that I think is, is a big problem that we have is we're getting stuck into, like everyone's needing to be, um, fitting within a nice, fitting nicely within the, like the boundaries of some pre-existing, uh, program. Mm-hmm. And those programs are all, they, they're all trying to figure out where they're funneling people. Cause I mean, ultimately they're trying to funnel people into jobs. Yeah. yeah, but they don't necessarily know where the jobs are going to be, so they're kind of just shooting at a tar- the target they can't see. Mm-hmm. And again, the pendulum could swing in the opposite direction again, where you end up graduating people that are hyper specialized. And like what I was worried about when I first was considering undergrad and thought about doing like cognitive computer science, you're so specialized that unless there's available jobs in that field, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that, that was the same. We discussed this a couple of times. You can either hyper specialize or you can, or like, you can be yeah. really, general. really be super general. general. Yeah. And that's what universities do now. They're very general. They yeah. don't give you the same, they don't give you any particular experience in a particular position, but yeah, that just leaves it up to chance almost what you end up being interested in. And yeah. Up doing. So you might mm-hmm. just run, but if you like our solution, if our solution is you give students the, uh, a taste of a lot of things early on and then you give them the tools, like, you allow them to take what they found interesting in the first, in the first little bit and then apply that to the tools they're learning later on. Um, it's, it would keep them more interested, but then we do, you do run into the problem where it's like you're giving them enough rope to hang themselves sometimes, which mm. is like, I think you, you better relate the skills to the application. So like we, we conceptualized this once where you had this idea of here's a list of all of the jobs that our graduates do. And here is how they progressed through this program that you're in. So here are all the courses that they took. Here are the skills that they picked up. And this is what they do now. And this is how they're applying those skills in those courses. If you want a job like this job, where you design the thruster for a Falcon 9 rocket, mm. these are the sorts of courses you should take. And these are the sorts of skills you're going to need to pick up. And this is the path that you should follow through undergrad. Yeah, treating, mm-hmm. treating it more like a skill tree. You yeah, know, exactly. You know, where, no, where absolutely. Yeah. It's, your, it's your life skill tree. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's... I think that's good, given that you give students a taste of all of the end skills mm-hmm. before saying, okay, now our starter skill is calculus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they can branch. Like, let's say you get halfway through undergrad and you're, you're like, you know what? I don't know if I really want to design payloads anymore. I think maybe instead I want to design bridges or I want to design watershed systems. And you're like, okay, well, these are the relevant skills you've already taken. This is what you're missing. If you branch in this direction and take these courses, you'll be able to catch up and mm-hmm. then you can do science sewers. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it's finding a balance between giving them a very, giving students a very specific experience early, early on to get them hooked on, on like an idea of what they're going to use engineering for versus giving them a, a grounding enough that when they do get to fourth year, they have what the knowledge they need to understand 
the really complex concepts that will give mm-hmm. them the like the jumping board into an actual job. Mm-hmm. And again, like high schools do that pretty well. They have guidance counselors. They have little like sessions and orientations where they talk about like here are some of the careers that are out there. You always do those like at least I did like those questionnaires where it's like what would you be good at? What mm-hmm. do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And like here's a bunch of jobs that seem like they're things you would like. Yeah. Um. But I have a lot of friends who've ended up doing that later in life. I have at least a couple of friends who end up going back to counselors and being like, I don't know what I'm doing with myself. Like, what am I good at? Yeah. Yeah. But the, I mean, the, but the, I think they still run into the same problem where it basically just it is if you're going to university, you need to take these maths, these sciences, these like these courses. And that's because that's what you need in order to meet the requirements to get into any university program. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter how, how well mapped out your program is. There's still these, these bottleneck courses that may or may not be interesting but if you don't take them it doesn't you you can't go you can't progress Mm -hmm. so i think that's it's those bottlenecks and giving students a reason to want to to slog through those bottlenecks and to get those skills that are important skills understanding calculus is important Mm -hmm. but it's students don't interact with it in the way that it makes sense for them to like to see this is a tool that you're going to use to solve a problem not this is a thing you need to memorize Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you're right it's all just a balance yeah well, okay. Is that is that a good place to wrap up, I guess? Yeah, I think that that answers a lot of questions mm-hmm. and includes a lot of rants and yeah. We'll, and, yeah. I mean the the problem circle back later and rant about other problems like Probably. we said that also still exist that we haven't even talked about. Yeah. I mean the, the ultimate re- the ultimate answer is going to be I think there needs to be a, a complete rethinking of the structure of engineering undergraduate education. Mm-hmm. Um just but that's going to be like that is as you say sort of a pie in the sky. You're you're going to Mm-hmm. cause a lot of trouble but yeah. i got lots of pie in the sky ideas but most of them aren't feasible <laughs> you you don't you don't get tenured with those kinds of ideas <laughs> no. but it's true that like things are changing and yeah. there, there is a shift towards actually i mean part of university i don't want to go too much into this again because we we're trying to stop but another one of the problems that with, with engineering education at universities is that a lot of profs don't care they'd rather just be doing research mm-hmm. and there's a shift now finally with a lot of professors where they're getting teaching positions yeah. and they're getting teaching positions that have a lot of clout and a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. And they have the freedom to be able to say, I really want to teach more effectively and have some better tools to be able to do the courses I have to teach in a way that students actually respond to and like and yeah. are interested mm-hmm. in. And Univer- that, that is changing. And say university politics might be an interesting topic if we could get a, if we wanted oh, to get man. somebody on the, well, get like to talk about the, the real world problems. If oh, we get yeah. somebody who's yeah. in, who is in either probably, if we could get somebody who is tenured and someone who isn't tenured, look at the difference because yeah. they have very different views. On oh, it. it's crazy. I've been to universities where we had a meeting and everyone had these great ideas. We're just like, this is awesome. Everyone's going to share all the equipment. Everyone's going to be super great. And all the students are going to have this great experience. And mm-hmm. we went literally across the quad mm-hmm. to a different prof's office and talked about what we had just talked about and how great it was going to be. And that prof was like, yeah, it's funny. It's <laughs> <laughs> not happening. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we should, uh, yeah, I, we know a few props. We should see if they want to come talk to us. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's wrap up with, uh, we'll do a fun fact. Yeah. Fun Learn fact. some things. Mm-hmm. Let's have some fun. It's time to fun fact of the week. All right. This week we are going to do branch water because it sounds cool. Um, you know, have you, have you heard of branch water? Nope. I, no. I learned about this the other day. So, uh, generally speaking, Branch water refers to any water that comes from a stream, like from a natural like spring or whatever, mm-hmm. as opposed okay. to like fizzy water. Um, it's gen, it's, well, no, it's, it's generally used in, as a term, like if you, if you're like you have a spirit, like some sort of, uh, uh, alcohol and you're going to add water, you either add like sparkling water or still water. And yeah. the still water in that case is sometimes generally referred to as branch water. Oh, okay. But, the really cool thing, what I found really interesting, is that in a very specific case, especially with bourbon, um, there are distilleries that sell bottles of branch water, which is the same water they use to make the bourbon and the same water they use to distill the bourbon to the desired alcohol content so that you can then dilute your drink with the huh. exact same water and not mess with the flavor of the bourbon. Interesting. Wow. That so makes sense. It's it's really branch water is still water. It's, yeah. But it's very, very specific water. And I have no idea if it has any real effect on the flavor of anything, but it's kind Sounds of a cool like concept. really effective marketing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I mean they do pay a lot of attention in spirits to where the water comes from. I remember when I was at the Telescore distillery, um, they have like their barrels that come from all over the place. Sometimes they come from Jack Daniels, sometimes mm-hmm. they come from other places. They come from all over and they've been 
aged and uh, matured in all sorts of different liquors. Mm-hmm. Um, but their water always comes from the side of the hill mm-hmm. covered in cows next to the <laughs> distillery. They don't even make their own, a lot of times, their own scotch. It's made in other larger facilities that have the capacity. Mm-hmm. So they'll have Talisker made at the Glenlivet factory yeah. following their recipe with barrels that come from the States. Mm-hmm. But the water has to come from the hill next to the Talisker distillery. Yeah. Hmm. So, and so you could probably, like, I don't know, I, I, I'm not so, it's specifically bourbon was what I was reading of, but you're probably the same thing with scotch where mm-hmm. you're like, I want a bottle of the water from that place. So yep. that when I put that water into my scotch, it's the, all the same water. Mm-hmm. So yeah, branch water. I had no idea what it was and it's kind of cool. That's that is neat. cool. So, Alrighty. Yeah. Social medias. All right. All right. I keep saying them and I keep screwing them up so someone else should say it. We have you, a website. We have a website. It's howdoyou.engineer. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you can talk to us on Twitter at howdoyouengineer. You can talk to me on Twitter. Yeah, just yeah. Pete. Pete's the one who listens to the Twitter. Yeah. Um, And then we... You can talk um, to Simon on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, we do We do have a subreddit. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, reddit slash r slash howdoyouengineer. Um, or how do you eng? Probably how really do you eng? Oh god! <laughs> you can maybe talk to Simon on Reddit. Maybe. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> next next week, I'll know for sure. Okay. Well, it's it's kind of hard. I, I haven't been all that excited about it since I'm the only one who ever posts to it or ever looks at it. <laughs> I'll start commenting. <laughs> it's it's just me in a in a dark room just talking to myself <laughs> about our podcast. This podcast is the bee's knees. <laughs> it's the cat's pajamas. Well, Andrew came from Reddit. Yeah, that's that, true. That, but I was posting to our engineer. He accidentally strayed in once. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that was that was me. I was pushing the uh the Reddit uh self-promotion yeah. rules by posting to engineering. So, yeah. No, that was good. that that was my foray into like mm-hmm. the real parts of Reddit. Um and then we have facebook.com/howdoyouench. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um shoutouts to I believe it's Doug who actually commented this week on our Facebook page. Yeah. First person in like a month. Yay. Yeah, and um, we told him he should tell us things he wanted to know, yeah. and he said he would. So thanks for talking to us. We're holding due to that, Doug. Yeah. The whole world is going to go and look at your comments, so you whole have world. to follow up. Mm. All right. So, yeah, thanks for like us. It was good. We'll do it again. Yeah. Yep. And uh, this was brought to you by Gwanzer. Thanks, Gwanzer.